Support for WPR comes from Schultz Nonprofit Law, sharing WPR's mission to inform and inspire, and providing advice for nonprofits, cooperatives, and other social enterprises. SchultzNonprofitLaw.com. Support for WPR comes from 4imprint, providers of promotional products for businesses, including embroidered apparel, trade show items, and logoed business gifts. More is at 4imprint.com. 4imprint, for certain. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're taking a look at some of the results from Election Day in some states earlier this week and what they could tell us about the upcoming presidential election in 2024. We'll talk about how Democrats performed in some key states, why abortion remains a crucial issue, and why Republicans are worried about some of those results. But there have also been some recent presidential polls, especially in swing states that have Democrats worried. We're looking at the road ahead to election 2024, and you can join in at 800-642-1234. Were you watching elections in a handful of states on Tuesday? What are your thoughts on the support for abortion rights policies, even in some red states? Have you been watching polls? What are you looking for in this next year until the presidential election? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Lily Gorin is a professor of political science at Carroll University in Waukesha. Lily, welcome back to Central Time. Hey, thanks for having me on today, Rob. Let's start with this week's election results. Now, these are off-year elections. It's a whole year till the presidential election. It's easy to overread anything that happens in elections like this. That said, uh, between uh, Democrats doing well in the Virginia legislature, a Democrat holding on to the Kentucky governor's office, the Ohio abortion uh, outcome, seems like a lot of good news for Democrats in those elections. Uh, yeah, I mean, they were they were sort of local, definitely state centric races um, in, in all the ones that you mentioned in terms of the Virginia legislature, both the um, House of Delegates and the state Senate. Um, the Kentucky governor's office, uh, Democrats did not win the uh, governor's office in Mississippi. Um, they were not expected to, but there was a lot of sort of paying attention to whether or not that was one that that would potentially go in the Democrats' favor. And of course, the constitutional amendments in Ohio, um, the top line one was with regard to enshrining access to abortion in the Ohio Constitution and also the legalization of recreational marijuana. Let's talk about abortion as an issue. A lot of people have been pointing toward a, a string of elections where Democrats performed uh, better than expected since the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision. What are you looking at there? Well, I mean, I think what you have seen is if abortion is actually on the ballot, and it has been in a number of states where voters are voting not just for an individual, but actually for some sort of referendum or amendment that um, abortion has access to abortion has won. Um, and I think it's now seven for seven um, in those cases. But you do also have like the situation in Virginia where Glenn Youngkin, who's a Republican um, governor, uh, was running um, a sort of statewide campaign to get 
uh, Republicans elected to the to the state houses there to enshrine a 15 week ban, uh, no abortion access after 15 weeks, except in cases of rape and incest, incest and the and the life of the mother. Um, but this was rejected by voters um, in terms of who they voted for to remain in the, the House of Delegates and the state Senate. All right. So that's what Democrats are looking at and seeing as good news. Republicans, though, I think are celebrating and Democrats worried about uh, a string of recent polls showing uh, President Biden uh, in difficult situations in battleground states in theoretical head to heads against uh, former President Trump and sometimes other Republican candidates. What is going on there? Why are we seeing the incumbent president, at least again, a year ahead of the election in state polls, uh, seemingly struggling? And I was I was asked a fairly similar question by actually a bunch of um, high school students in in the UK earlier this week. I was zooming oh, cool. into their class, um, and and I said one of the things that you know sort of we as political scientists often look at are what the quote fundamentals are in terms of, you know, what people are thinking about the economy, about the the country going in the right or the wrong direction. Um, and even though we have, you know, historically low unemployment at the moment, inflation is still high and it's higher than it has been in quite some time. And so people are not necessarily feeling like the economy is stabilized because they're paying a lot more when they go to the store. And, and President Biden, for good or ill, depending on your perspective, is often getting blamed for, you know, some of this stuff. And then we have these, you know, two big conflagrations with regard to Ukraine and the Russian invasion there. And of course, the more recent one with regard to Hamas in Gaza attacking Israel and now Israel's um, moving into Gaza. And so we, we see this kind of instability in other places in the world. And oftentimes Americans kind of respond. And obviously we have been sending support um, both monetarily and militarily to these places. But we are very concerned in a lot of ways about like, what does this mean? Does this mean that the world is less stable and we have to be more concerned about that, you know, essentially coming to our shores? Talking to Lily Gorin, professor of political science at Carroll University in Waukesha, looking at the road to the 2024 election. The results in a few states around the country on Tuesday with good news for Democrats, polls with uh, good news for Republicans, at least in presidential head-to-head matchups in many battleground states. You can join in with your thoughts, your questions at 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Willem is with us in Colfax. Willem, hi. Hi. I guess what I find troubling and uh, seriously troubling is that one of the major parties in this country, the Republican Party, the party of Honest Abe, as I was always told as a child, has become the party of lying Donald. He has been perpetrating this lie of a stolen election, and it activates people. I have people around. I've seen signs that people have. They believe him. They believe him, and that's why they came to January 6th. And the Republican Party somehow doesn't have the spine to stand up for the truth and what is right. And the rule of law requires evidence. That's what this country is built on. We're a country of laws and not men. Willem, thanks a lot for the call. And Lily, I've seen some actually critique of media coverage uh, treating this as a normal presidential race where we talk about uh, polls and off-year elections and issues and things like that. 
uh, versus concerns that Willem has in that uh, Donald Trump is a different type of candidate who tried to overturn the previous election results, has basically said he would use the power of the presidency to chase uh, his political opponents, including uh, former cabinet officials who stood up to him during his administration. Should we be talking about this in a different way than we would talk about a normal, whatever that is, presidential election? Well, I mean, I do think that it is it is a different um, dynamic uh, with regard to Trump. And we just saw the election of the new speaker in the House of Representatives, who is was forefront in terms of the election denial issues. Um, And so the the basis of a democracy is is pretty much everybody agrees on the rules. Um, It's not necessarily that you agree on the policies or the people who are in office, but you kind of agree that the the system functions in a particular way, and that's the way you're going to keep going with the system. Um, and and the election denial and the lack of a sort of peaceful transfer of power. Ultimately, it was peaceful, but January 6 was not peaceful. Um, that that is an aberration in our history, and it is very troubling with regard to sustaining democracy. Thanks for that call, Willem, at 800-642-1234. I want to look at the new Marquette uh, University Law School survey. An interesting uh, finding there, uh, President, former President Trump leads the Republican primary field. No surprise there. He does uh, in most polls, I think, nationally or at state levels. In head-to-heads, though, uh, other candidates, other Republican candidates, do better against uh, incumbent Joe Biden than Trump himself does. Uh, Is it a case where uh, Trump could easily win a primary but uh, make it harder for Republicans to win a general election? I mean, I I think that's what a lot of these polls are indicating. And again, they are showing that Biden has a variety of weaknesses, not the least of them his age, Um, but that ultimately, if Nikki Haley were the, the Republican nominee instead of Trump, it is likely that the Republicans would have uh, potentially a much easier time winning the White House. That's what the polls are saying to me, at least particularly the the Mar- Marquette Law School poll, um, where she is, she is ahead of both DeSantis and Trump in terms of winning the state of Wisconsin. Lily Gorin is with us, professor of political science at Carroll University in Waukesha. She's talking with us about Tuesday's election results in some states around the country and recent polls, what it all may reveal or at least point to for 2024's election year. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Trump-Biden election. Do you like that notion? Would you like to see one different name, two different names in the Democratic and Republican uh, campaigns for president? Why? Why not? If you're a Republican, would you like to see someone other than Donald Trump be your standard bearer in this election? Same question if you're a Democrat for President Biden. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Verrett.
We continue our talk with Carroll University political science professor Lily Gorin about some takeaways from Tuesday's Election Day, early presidential polling, and the road ahead to next year's election. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What are the most important things for you when you vote? What kind of issues do you want to see candidates focus on when you vote? What is most important to you in this upcoming presidential campaign? Upcoming, it's going on now. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Lily, I teased a few moments ago, you know, a likely Trump Biden rematch. A lot of polls show a lot of people aren't enthusiastic about it. I've seen like one in five saying uh, neither (laughs) given that choice. But when it comes down to it, of course, a lot of people will vote for the candidate from their party or against the candidate from the other party. Uh, Is there room for anything but Trump and Biden this time around? Well, I mean, we we just had the third debate among um, challengers to Trump for the the GOP nomination this week on Wednesday night. Um, and so you you still have five challengers who are on the debate stage, um, although they may get whittled down before the next debate. But most of them are 20, 35 points away from Trump. Um, so it's not necessarily clear you know, how they're going to move Trump from that position um, as the nominee. As for Biden, he also has been getting a couple more challengers. Um, I, I just saw recently that Jill Stein has launched another presidential campaign for the Green Party nomination. Um, and so there are other folks in the field. Um, but in the case of Biden, most of them don't seem to be um, really much of a threat to an incumbent president. And it seems like Biden is going to you know, continue to run. He seems like he's going to be the nominee for the Democrats. So it looks like Biden and Trump. <laughs> Let's go back. To, oh, sorry. Could, go ahead, could change. It could change. <laughs> Let's go back to our callers at 800-642-1234. Mark is with us in Upper Michigan. Mark, hi. Hi. How's it going? Uh, go ahead, Mark. I, I I believe Biden's policies are wrong. You know, I'm, I'm, I used to be a Democrat. I worked union all my life for 30 years. I'm retired. And uh, it seems like he's getting away from the working man's fight. You know, I mean, Mark, I, I think I gotcha. And Mark, I think is is kind of he's not alone. He's kind of a nightmare for for Democrats, uh, former union members, as Mark is, who perceive, uh, rightly or wrongly, that the Democratic Party, in this case, he says Biden in particular, aren't the party focusing on working people anymore. How big a factor is that, Lily? I mean, I think it is a factor. Um, and I think that, you know, what you just saw also with the the UAW strike um, with both Biden and Trump going to um, going to talk to the well to union workers um, or workers who are part of um, the the industry and so forth is, you know, trying to woo those workers. But at the same time, a lot of the the folks who were sort of the the lunch pail Democrats, if you will, um, they many of them left the Democratic Party earlier. Um, so I'm not necessarily sure that there are a lot who are leaving right now. Um, and and one of the things I think that Biden has has tried to do, um, and he may not be successful, but he has tried to sort of woo some of them back. 
Um, but the populism in the Republican Party is very strong. And that has also been attractive to a number of union workers as well. Thanks for the call, Mark. I want to talk a little more about the the UAW strike, as you mentioned, just ended. We had Biden go and speak to union workers. Trump go and speak at a non-union shop. Biden uh, back there as some of these deals are being uh, made, uh, tentative deals now being voted on by union locals. Uh, Is if union workers say, okay, yes, uh, Biden is paying more attention to union workers than Trump is, are there enough of them these days that it makes a big political difference anyway? Um, I mean, uh, the the membership in unions has obviously declined rather dramatically over the last three decades or so. Um, but at the same time, if those union workers happen to be in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin, mm-hmm. which is where quite a few of them are, um, at least in, in terms of the UAW workers, that may be important for both um, Trump and Biden, uh, because obviously these are swing states. And if you, you know, if you can pull some of those voters in your camp, that may help you over the finish line on Election Day. Let's go back to our callers. Stu is with us now in Hillsborough. Stu, hello. Hello. Uh, longtime listener, first time caller. Thanks I'd for like calling. To say, uh, Terribly sorry about the loss of civility in politics today. There's no room for name calling. That should stop immediately. And that uh, there should be rules to debate, like a wall between the candidates. The moderator has to have a kill the mic switch. And right now, there should be a demand for written 20 questions, a strategy that would ensure the candidates know what they're talking about because it is so silly to just have 20-second interruptions of each other. Stu, thanks a lot for the call. Lily, you mentioned the most recent uh, Republican debate. Uh, they are very uh, performative, I think it's fair to say. Do you think? Yep. Do you worry, uh, as Stu seems to, that we're not getting any substance out of these things? Well, I mean, these debates and and the same to some degree, the same thing with the presidential debates have, you know, they they you get a very short amount of time to answer a question. Um, and so it's very hard to, in, in a certain sense, flesh out a lot of policy. Um, but there was, you know, there were, again, lots of fireworks at the Wednesday debate, um, a lot of them coming from um, Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, and, you know, it's again how he has, as you say, performed in the past. Um, but I, I don't necessarily know that the RNC or the DNC um, or the Presidential Debate Commission is going to try to change a lot of these things. And it's very unclear if Donald Trump is the nominee, if he will, in fact, do any debate. Thanks for the call, Stu. Talking about the road to the 2024 elections with Lily Gorin from Carroll University. Back to your calls now. Susan is with us in Rhinelander. Susan, hi. Hey, Rob. Thanks for taking the call and love Lily. Uh, I was saying that I I consider myself a centrist, a moderate, whatever label you want to put on it. So therefore, I, you know, I support some conservative ideas as well as some liberal ideas. And I watched the GOP debate. I thought it was rather fascinating, although I wasn't glued every moment, but I don't think I heard any significant mention of climate change and or policy or clean energy. And I I guess I I sit back and I say, why wouldn't that, why wouldn't there be a question on that for, you know, us independents out here who, who feel that this is 
a, a serious threat, and I, I think we can all agree on that uh, because of all the, you know, the research and attention that we hear about climate change. And I didn't hear a mention, I don't think, but you can correct me. Susan, thanks for the call. I know there was a, a brief bit in, a, I can't remember if it was debate number one or number two, Lily, but by and large, in Republican debates, not a whole lot of climate change. Uh, in head-to-head presidential debates over the last uh, few cycles, I don't think there's been a lot of talk about climate change. No, not particularly among the Republicans, because um, there is a lot of skepticism about the the data that Sue mentioned um, in the Republican um, the electorate or the elected uh, officials. But, you know, there I think there I think you're right. I think there was one question um, maybe in the second debate. Um, but there was, and there was a little bit of discussion, I think of fracking at some point. Um, it's all a little bit of a fever dream. Uh, (laughs) but I, I'm not necessarily sure that we've seen, you know, sort of big global questions about like how to solve this, this really threatening problem. Thanks again for that call. Lily, I want to bring things as we look to the future now uh, back to the issue of abortion. Now, we had Ohio voters, as you mentioned, approving this constitutional amendment guaranteeing abortion uh, access uh, in most cases. 18 counties in Ohio that went for Trump in 2020 also voted to support abortion rights this week. Looking at a map, it looked like a lot of suburban counties. What do you expect to see from both parties to uh, harness or counter that issue uh, over the next year? Well, I mean, I think that the the Youngkin effort in Virginia was an attempt to see if a 15-week ban would be something that was acceptable to voters. And if that was the case, then that would essentially be more or less the, the sort of template going forward. But that didn't seem to work in Virginia. Um, and so I have a feeling that the Republicans are still sort of regrouping in terms of how to um, run against what has happened since the Dobbs decision. Um, and Democrats are trying to capitalize on this as a, as a you know, sort of plank and platform that they see as helping them be successful in elections. Lily, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for having me on again. That's Lily Gorin, professor of political science at Carroll University. She talked to us about what this week's election results and the latest polls might tell us about the 2024 election campaign. Coming up Monday here on Central Time, a big new Martin Scorsese movie is bringing new attention to the portrayal of Native Americans in movies and on TV. A Native American filmmaker joins the show for a look at how things have changed or stayed the same over the years. And online forums and games and social media have been overwhelmed in some cases by toxic behavior. But there are some new strategies in the works to try to build better online environments. An expert in online behavior and communication digs into some of those latest efforts. Love to hear from you. You can get the conversation started right now. Email ideas at WPR.org. Is there an online community that drove you off with all the badness or one that you think works really well. Tell us how, what it is, and why. Then join the conversations. It's all coming up Monday here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, a lot of us have turned to group chats and texting as the primary way to communicate directly with our social circles. A UW-Madison expert joins us to explore the social dynamics of our texts with friends, family, and beyond. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network.
It's Central Time. I'm Rob Parrott. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Social media use was on the rise for years and years, but there are some signs that those trends are tapering off. And a lot of people are turning instead to a different way of connecting online with friends and family, group chats and texts. Whether it's WhatsApp, Messenger, Discord, or just regular old cell phone text messages, people are turning toward this more direct form of group communication instead of relying on social media algorithms to mediate their interactions. Like any platform, group chats have their own set of social dynamics and etiquette that come with up and downsides. We're exploring the rise of group messaging, how we communicate over text with different social groups. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have some kind of group chat, maybe with family members, a particular group of friends? How do they work for you? Do you like them as a way to keep up with people? Or do all the messages start to become too much? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Catalina Toma is an associate professor of communication science at UW-Madison. She researches how people interact over communication technologies. Catalina, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. I've been seeing articles about the rise of group chat and thought, well, I don't really do that. And then I thought, well, wait, I've got one with my you know, immediate family and one with my parents, one with my band and one with my football buddies and things like that. It kind of snuck up on me. Is this a big trend that we're seeing out there? People turning toward group text as a mode of communication? I think it is. I think we're seeing definitely an increase in this new form of communication. And it's really interesting to think about why we're Mm -hmm. seeing this migration, as you said, from social media platforms, social networking sites to these more personalized, uh, private forms of communication. And I have some theories about that. I'm happy to share. One, I think COVID played a big part Mm -hmm. um, in this where opportunities for face-to-face contact were severely limited and there was a need to talk to the people uh, nearest and dearest to us and these platforms uh, provided that opportunity. But second, and I think a little bit more interestingly, is that people have kind of matured in their use of social networking sites. And they've realized that uh, maybe not everybody is interested in seeing what they converse in a, about in a mundane way with friends and family, right? Because that's what would happen when we would you know, tag each other and post on each other's walls and, and comment and talk to each other in a public forum. You know, social networking sites are a, an interesting environment because... Um, they connect us with really large and diverse audiences. We call this context collapse, right? When we talk to people uh, publicly on social media, uh, we talk to groups of people who we would never talk to simultaneously. It could be your your friends and your family and your romantic partner and your boss and your coworkers and a bunch of strangers and some people you met at a party. You would never talk to these people together simultaneously, but on social media you can. And that definitely has some cons. So it makes sense for people to move away from those more indiscriminate broadcasting types of communication to more personalized and private and targeted communications through group chat. Yeah, it seems like so much of social media incentivizes you to go big, to have a wider reach, to expand your group of friends or followers or whatever the particular platform has and get messages that lots of people see. Uh, that group chat, you know exactly how many people you're reaching and you, you have no incentive to try to go beyond that. Exactly. Social networking site companies, you know, Facebook, Twitter, X, uh, Snapchat, so on and so forth, are trying to get people to 
publicize as much as possible, to engage, to share, to overshare, because that's what attracts attention. But from the user perspective, that's not always wise or beneficial. So um, users are opting increasingly for more privacy, and that's what we're seeing with group chats. Is there something about the technology that's making group chat easier? I mean, there are different apps that are better at it, but I've also noticed there used to be uh, Apple-Android divides where things functioned differently. Is it just a smoother, less uh, uh, less frictiony technology now? It is smoother, and I think... Looking back, I think that was one of the big appeals of WhatsApp when it mm-hmm. first started to get traction. It really facilitated group chats and, you know, it enabled you to give these groups names and use emojis to cutify the, the name and invite people and so on and so forth. And uh, that was a, a real draw of the platform at the time that users enjoyed. Can you talk about how we define social groups within these group chats? Again, on Facebook, say, our social group is everybody who has friended us and whoever they share it with. Now it seems like we're defining things in a different way when we're selectively saying this goes to group A, this goes to group B. Right. And I would say, very broadly speaking, there could be two types of groups. You know, the more permanent groups that you constantly talk to and very typically people have a group for family members people have a group for close friends or different groups of friends that they talk to on on the regular Uh, but there's also more temporary groups like Mm event-based groups we're organizing this dinner with so and so and we want to talk about the logistics and we create a very temporary group for that and that goes away but what's really interesting to me is the more permanent groups that allow for the sense of connection and and sharing in a really non-frictiony way, right? Like, because there's many members of the group, everybody can contribute a little bit. You can feel connected to the group without a a deep expense of energy on anybody's side. Talking to Catalina Toma with the UW-Madison Communication Science Department, looking at the rise of group texting, group chats as a way for people to communicate online instead of in many cases, social media platforms. Is this you? Are you doing this? Join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have that chat going maybe with family members, a group of friends or coworkers or fill in the blank? What do you use it for? Is it ever too much? Do you ever look at your phone and say, what the heck's going on? Why do I have all these messages? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. I'm seeing a lot of articles and comments out there, Catalina, about, yeah, it's getting overwhelming. People use these things in a different way. I'll give one example. In my band, we have a group. It's usually very practical. Is there practice tonight? Here's our latest band files, whatever. And then sometimes three of us get going chatting about something. And the fourth one, hates that and doesn't want to see all those messages pop up. How do we negotiate that kind of etiquette, not just in my band, but in in whatever group we happen to be in? Uh, Yeah, that's really interesting conversations to be had. And I think people are aware of what's interesting to whom, but... Also, the technology allows you to ignore messages pretty pretty easily and with, without a lot of cost, right? So I don't know about your group member who's annoyed. It's probably me. I would probably just not read <laughs> those messages. Uh, but if the annoyance is expressed, then you can, of course, um, take the conversation elsewhere. You can create a different group where 
um, everybody's interested. In my experience, uh, and from what I know of research in the psychology of these technologies, people enjoy the sense of connection that doesn't require a lot of effort. Even mm -hmm. if you might not read everything, getting those notifications feels good because you're part of a conversation. People think about you. You're included. And all of those are really important psychological signifiers for people that feel really great. There is now a separate group for everyone but the guitarist. So it, <laughs> it, it worked itself out. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Rachel is with us in Eau Claire. Rachel, hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to comment about the differing media literacy that we have in the world and how many people fake identities and how there's often gatekeeping and less social interaction based on gatekeeping. I uh, try to educate based on uh, ticks, threats, diagnosis, threat syndrome, about what different aspects of it mean. Uh, people on TikTok came at me, attacked me. They found out where I went to university and they reported me to the university. And I'm like, I try to educate people, but you're going to be mean. Let's go group chat. Rachel, I got you. Thanks a lot for the call. Not a great signal there, but Rachel, talking about some of the risks of those much more public-facing sites, in this case, TikTok, uh, versus having that group chat with people you're not going to be, you're not as likely to be attacked by, say, total strangers on that personal group chat. Absolutely. I really enjoyed uh, Rachel's point and her emphasis on some of the more serious risks mm -hmm. of posting on social media, right? It's not just oversharing and giving too much information to friends and family uh, in a way that it could make, they could be annoyed with you, but very serious risks like identity theft and so on and so forth. So uh, to mitigate those risks of social media, moving to more private channels of communication makes a lot of sense. And I really love that Rachel brought on the concept of social media literacy, which is something we're all, we're all working on, right? And it's not always super um, obvious on how to navigate these complicated spaces, which is why we have programs like this one. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot for the call, Rachel. We are talking to UW-Madison communication science professor Catalina Toma about group chats, group texts, how we communicate to our friends and family at the same time over text, maybe instead of social media, maybe replacing some of the ways we've used social media. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a group chat? Do you have lots and lots of group chats? Do you like them? What do you use them for? Practical stuff, fun stuff, a little bit of both? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation. Maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation with Catalina Toma, Associate Professor of Communication Science at UW-Madison, who researches social interaction over digital platforms. We're talking about one of those platforms now, the rise in popularity of group chats and text groups as a form of communication among family, friends, coworkers, you name it. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have group texts or group chats in your social group, your friends, your family? Do you like it? Does it get a little much? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls now. Libby is with us in Mozanie. Libby, hello. Hello. What did you want to tell us about? Well, you know, I, I, I have several groups in WhatsApp, and we actually also connect on Facebook. 
And I've been living here in the U.S. since I was 18. I'm, I'm 55 now. And uh, I reconnected with my friends from elementary school. We have not seen each other for 45 years. Wow. And it started with my best friends, a group of three, and then we ended up adding 25 <laughs> out of the 32. And I also have my group from middle school and my group from high school down in Panama while I'm here. And we communicate constantly, and, and there's like a zillion notifications, but whoever doesn't want it, they can turn it off. Is is uh, energizing. I really love it. Uh, my day's busy, busy, busy because I teach. I just ignore it, uh, and then I go to it during the weekend when I have time. Let me, so it's very convenient. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm glad you're able to reconnect with old friends back in, I think you said, Panama. And uh, uh, Catalina, international communication has been difficult and expensive for many years, and now it's almost free for people in Libby's situation. Could you talk about uh, how this has changed how we communicate across not just state lines, but across international lines. No, absolutely. This is a great point. And I think this is where WhatsApp really shown in the beginning because it was a, a web-based uh, application that anybody with an internet connection could use as opposed to regular text messages that um, you'd have to be a subscriber for mm -hmm. and pay for. So it allowed people across the world to communicate with one another and connect across geographical boundaries. And that's such a gift and contribute so much to people's well-being and ability to stay in touch. So I really appreciate that point. And Libby also talked about some features of online communication of these group texts that are really beneficial, such as they're kind of asynchronous in the sense mm -hmm. that you don't have to respond right away. You don't have to engage right away in the same way that you would with a telephone call, right? You can take your time. You can engage at your convenience on the weekend or whatever works for you. And that could be really, really beneficial. In fact, this is why people prefer texting over, say, the telephone, uh, kind of in a more general sense. And they've developed research identifies this interesting phenomenon of phone fears, right? When the phone rings, um, you're almost worried because it's probably something bad and mm -hmm. it's probably something serious. That's when people feel like it's okay to intrude, to stop whatever you're doing so you can take the phone call. Whereas a group chat or any text for that matter, you can engage with at your convenience. And that's really great. Thanks a lot for that call at 800-642-1234. Al joins us next in Green Bay. Al, hi. Hey, thanks for putting me on. So the setup for this is I'm a professional driver. Every time the Tampa Bay Buccaneers come to Green Bay, they hire our firm to move their owners around. There's five owners, their brothers and sisters, come from different locations. So we have one driver assigned to each one of these owners. On the Sunday morning of the game, the security guy sits down with us and he takes every one group text. Oh, we're losing. It doesn't matter what color your phone. It doesn't matter what color your phone is. Doesn't matter. You don't need an app. You just need the ability to text, right? So then, I text when I depart for the airport. I text when I've got my passenger on. I text when I got my passenger off. The security guy stays in one place. And he be immediately knows at any given time where any of the five people are that he's worried about. Interesting. Al, thanks a lot for sharing that with us. You're cutting in and out there a little bit. 
Uh, next time you see them, say maybe they should sell Man- Manchester United, by the way. <laughs> but th- this is a very practical use, a, a one-off use. We've got this logistical situation, and we're using this group chat to manage it, Catalina. Absolutely. We call these acts uh, micro-coordination, right? Texting mm-hmm. really allows you to coordinate with multiple people almost in real time if everybody's connected simultaneously and knows that they're important it's important to 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 converse in real time and you can do those uh, with many people and with much less effort than on a phone call and that's a really valuable aspect of texting well thanks a lot for that call we're talking about the rise of group text group chats as a way to communicate with uh friends family fellow drivers as it turns out in this case still time for you to join in with your experience uh for good or ill with group texting, group chats at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can email ideas at WPR.org or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Now, texting has been around for a long time. Usually it was a two-way. It can be I text you, you text me back, that sort of thing. What are you watching for as, as our use of group chats evolves and group texting evolves? Well, it's interesting to think about uh, group size, you know, what is a good group size for having those conversations and how group size and composition will affect what it is that people talk about. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to look at psychological effects. I mean, we predict that people enjoy these uh, group communication because more people are using them. Uh, and uh, But it's important to study why they enjoy it, you know, what psychological benefits of connection uh, people get through it, but also the bad side. Like, what are some troublesome conversations that could be had? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some blind spots that people could be having and maybe oversharing, depending on the composition and the size of the group? And then the question of why am I not in this group? <laughs> Right. So a lot of technologies make exclusion a little invisible. Like if you're not part of the group, you don't know what's going on. So it doesn't hurt in the same way as seeing people in the office in that corner talking amongst themselves without you. So being excluded is a little bit less obvious. But when it does become obvious, it's as painful as any other exclusion. And uh, our caller earlier, Libby, mentioned, you know, some of these group chats are 20 some people that that seems like a lot to manage. That is a lot to manage. And this is what I hear anecdotally from my students, too. When groups become too large, they become dysfunctional, as in there's not a suitable conversation for everybody. So we have to move away from those groups and maybe create new ones. Let's bring on another caller. Chris is with us in Menominee. Chris, hi. Hi. So as it pertains to social media and the the public realm, uh, I currently work with a company who uh, employs another company to pre-screen all potential applicants by not just doing a background check, but they check all of their social media, anything that you would post publicly, Facebook or X or what have you. And anything that's maybe radical or extreme could certainly um, cost somebody the ability to gain employment. So, uh, Interesting. You know, Chris, thanks a lot for the call. A lot of that out there, uh, barring a subpoena, as some famous crypto uh, entrepreneurs have discovered, mostly that kind of our texts or group texts aren't going to 
come up in that kind of uh, screening process, I would assume. Catalina. They are not. They are not. And that's a real advantage. I mean, we've all heard the stories of uh, employers and significant others, like scrutinizing stuff that's being posted publicly in a way that was never intended by the poster. And that could have really serious repercussions. And this, you know, privacy risk is one of the reasons people move away to more private channels of communication. Thanks for the call, Chris. Time for another caller. Bonnie is with us in Lake Geneva. Bonnie, hi. Hi, how are you today? Good. What's your group text story? Hi, how are you today? Good. Bonnie, what did you want to tell us about? Well, I have a lot of siblings, and we have a group chat called the Cool Cats, (laughs) Cool Cats 2, and uh, we're very busy on it, but it gets crazy during Green Bay Packers games. Awesome, buddy. Thanks. I have a group of friends around the country now, and the only time pretty much we activate the group text is during a Packer game, maybe the Super Bowl. Uh, it's a, a, way, a nice way for occasional communication, Catalina. Absolutely. I used to have a group chat where we would Wordle. Do you remember Wordle oh, when yeah. it first came up? And we would share the Wordles every morning, and then we got tired of it after a while. But it was one of those situational group chats that uh, gives you some enjoyment about sharing something you have in common. Thanks a lot for that. Uh, Before we run out of time, I want to talk about uh, this as an intergenerational thing. Because, like, okay, maybe adults do Facebook, kids do Insta or whatever they're doing now. Uh, My kids will be on the group chats. My parents will be on the group chats. It seems to be a place where people of different ages can come together. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think that's really interesting. Uh, And one of the sticky points that this brings forth is the issue of literacy, right? Different generations might have different comfort levels with the group chats. And that's why even though it's possible to have group chats on platforms like Facebook or Snapchat, they might not be as accessible intergenerationally as something really, really simple like just texting or just WhatsApp. We got to keep those considerations in mind. All right. Just uh, a personal question. How many group chats do you reckon you uh, have going at any given time? I have, oh, maybe four or five. I guess not a ton, but I enjoy all of them. Even if they're talking about stuff that doesn't pertain to me directly, (laughs) it's really nice to be included in the conversation via fly of the wall. I enjoy them a lot. Catalina, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Catalina Toma is an associate professor of communication science at UW-Madison. She's with us today to talk about group chats and group texting and why more and more of us are communicating with friends, family, and others over shared text messages, maybe instead of social media platforms. I'm Rob Ferret. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. You're listening to The Ideas Network.